The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of VC Soccer, its membership organizations, or their affiliate organizations. Welcome to BC Soccer's Cones and Pennies podcast, a show designed to inspire and connect the British Columbia soccer community. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Coming up, we'll reflect on the incredible year that 2021 was for soccer by welcoming two British Columbians who played big roles in their team's championships. And we'll officially introduce the first ever League One BC general manager. Here's your host, BC Soccer's marketing and communications officer, Peter Shad. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you found us and I hope you share it with some of your colleagues or friends within the game because the whole point of this show is to share positive soccer experiences through the eyes of British Columbians who help deliver it. And we have three excellent top class British Columbians lined up on today's program. I love this time of year. It's very special for my family. And above all else, I really hope that you are able to spend some quality time with your family and friends. And I also hope that we charge into 2022 with hope and positivity. I don't know about you, but when the clock strikes midnight on the 31st, I often find myself taking inventory of the year that was and then dream about what might be in store and how to make things better for the new year. Sometimes you come off a year that was so great, you don't even want to start all over again. And other times you can't wait for the previous year to end. On today's show, we celebrate what has been an extraordinary year for Canadian soccer, thanks in large part to the exploits of both our men's and women's national teams, which provided us with some great moments that I personally will never forget as long as I live. Julia Grosso from Burnaby. Her pops, Carlos, is a vice president on BC Soccer's board, so there's this personal connection. And to see her plant the ball with that split-second moment of horror when the legendary Swedish goalkeeper Hedvig Lindahl got her hand to it before the netting rippled, it was euphoric. And now Julia has signed with Juventus. Incredible. I'm so excited we'll have the architect and leader of that gold medal winning run joining us later. And never in my lifetime would I have thought that a Canadian men's team could rampage the way they did versus Panama at home or be the better team at the Azteca or beat the Mexicans in the snow in front of 50,000 people. I never thought I would see the day. And 2022 is a World Cup year. Can you believe one year from now, with lights twinkling and presents under the tree, we'll be watching the World Cup from Qatar? And four years after that, it'll be Canada co-hosting. This coming year could be even bigger for our soccer programs in this country than last year was. And to that, I say, bring it on. We also saw this past year a maturing Canadian professional soccer league navigating some very choppy waters again and surviving a pandemic in its infancy. And a BC team just won the final after two years of steady growth. We'll have the BC-raised goalkeeper on today's show. And members of the Pacific FC ownership group just recently announced a second CPL club planned for the lower mainland of British Columbia. You might have seen our plans for a soccer hub in Poco at Gates Park, which we released on Monday. It's a long way to go still. 
but to have a facility like that would be incredible for our membership. And just wrapping up the great things from 2021, finally, after years of planning and strategizing, we are rolling out League One British Columbia. The clubs are announced. A preliminary draft schedule has already been circulated to start the process of nailing down home dates. And now we have a general manager. BC Soccer received close to 100 applications for the role, which will include everything from operations, logistics, strategic partnerships, marketing, and so the candidate really needed to tick a lot of boxes, but our successful candidate did so in spades. With an extensive background as a player with UBC and the Whitecaps, who then transitioned seamlessly to coaching, specifically in goalkeeper development at various programs, including the Canadian national team and DePaul University in Chicago. But of all the things that excites us about our next guest is that she is a product of the very three pillars this league is built on. A North Shore girls player, the community part, standards-based environments, her entire soccer career, and now the opportunity to become an administrative leader in the game. I'm so happy to welcome to the Cones and Pennies podcast, League One BC's first ever general manager, Sean Bagshaw. Thanks so much for having me, Peter. Really excited about the role and to be part of the league in its inception. It sounds right too. Sean Bagshaw, League One General Manager. Has a nice ring to it. Yes, I'm looking forward to it a lot uh, to be in the role and working with the different clubs and within the league. So yeah, ready to get started. What attracted you to the opportunity? I saw the job posting and it had some very similar roles and responsibilities to one of my previous roles. And I thought, you know, I've been out of the game for a couple of years from an administrative perspective, and I really want to give back to the game and the community. And this league is a semi-professional league, and it fills a big gap in the soccer landscape here in BC. So it's just something I was really motivated to try to be part of. I mentioned this to you via email, but even in your application video, you have a leadership aura to you. Where does that come from, do you think? Well, it's very kind of you to say that. I feel like from a leadership perspective, the people I've been around and worked with and worked for have been great examples of how to work within a team. So that's been a big help. I think just life experience over the past few years, being a parent has been able to help me grow as an individual. I think that that's helped and contributed to that a lot. Is it possibly why maybe you gravitated towards uh, goalkeeping initially or did goalkeeping itself inspire your life that followed in leadership type roles? I got into goalkeeping because my dad was the manager of the team and no one else really wanted to play. So <laughs> the head coach and the manager, their two kids ended up being put in goal. So that was kind of how I got started. But I just really liked the excitement of it. Um, it was always very different. And yes, the leadership aspect of the role was very enticing. So yeah, I think in a way on the field, this led to off the field, me wanting to continue to be part of the game. How big a benefit is it to you to already know so many of the key people uh, in the license holder realm, but also in the BC soccer world. I think it's good that there's familiarity in some ways because you have a bit of a relationship. My role then was more as a player that I knew a lot of the names and faces. Now my role is different, but again, the familiarity, having that positive relationship with people is very important. So wanting to continue to build on that for sure. Now there's a job description with your role, but inevitably you will also bring things to the role that nobody would have thought of initially. What are some of the things that you hope to bring into this role? The perspective that everybody here will be working together to build something that is really great that BC Soccer has overseen. 
bring the league to fruition and the seven clubs, the license holders that are starting the league, that there is a lot of benefit for these players and the staff, the coaches, the sports science experts, the administrators. This is a platform for all of them to grow and grow the game locally and nationally. So that I think is very important to build on that and people to recognize how important that is. What potential outcomes excite you the most? Uh, Like when you look back five years from now, what would you really want to see? I would really like to see the alignment of this tier of league because there's a League One Ontario similar in Quebec. I would like to see those aligned and then you'd have a semi-professional league throughout the country. Right now, you know, you have the CPL on the men's side. There's nothing for the women's side. But it's really important to have a platform for players because people develop at different rates. So for it to be something that is national. This league will require discipline and realistic expectations so that uh, the people who are investing in it see benefits somewhere down the road. However, have you dared to dream about the possibilities that perhaps will exceed our expectations in these sort of first three to five critical years? To have investors or partners who see the benefit of the league is really important for them to be able to come in and be able to support the league and the communities that the teams are based in. I think that will really help drive the league a lot just to give them the exposure that they need to continue to grow. I'm a hopeless football romantic, so while development is a very nice thing, and in my opinion, we'd really have to get it wrong to not see people progress through this league. But for me, it's culture that needs building in our country in many respects. The the foundational lower league community football experience exists everywhere else. So how do we build it here in Canada and specifically BC? Awareness that it actually exists is very important. If you don't know about the league, how are you going to come and watch it? Or as a player, try out for a team, be part of a team, administrator, be part of that staff, coach, be part of that staff. So there's so many important building blocks in place. And I think a lot of it is awareness, which comes from marketing, word of mouth. So I think that is a very important piece of what needs to be built. So people are aware of it. And that's how the culture continues to grow. Marketing, of course, is music to my ears. Have you thought about some of the strategies and techniques that will hopefully help amplify the messaging that you've been talking about there and get people to come out and watch these games in person or even on television one day? Social media seems like an obvious one, but there's a lot of community engagement that can happen with players going to local youth clubs below them. Because I remember when I used to play Whitecaps, we used to go and do clinics for a lot of local clubs and go throughout the community doing that. And then you see those kids at your games on the weekends. And I think that kind of thing makes a big difference for the culture and wanting to, again, build the game in the right way. How important is it that we develop more soccer administrators like yourself in this country? Yeah, I think it's very important because you need administrators and staff members who understand the game and understand what the players and coaches need. I think if an administrator is doing their job properly, the coaches and players don't really know, in essence, what they do because there's never any problems. No news is good news. (laughs) So... To be able to do your job well, you have to have a really good understanding of what the priorities for the players and the coaches are and the sports science side of things. I would get pulled into those types of meetings when I was working with Canada Soccer. And at first I thought, oh, well, why would they want me there? But then I understood how important it was because they'd then come to me and say, oh, we need X, Y, Z for this camp. And then I understand why. And it's not a question, oh, you know, we we can't do that. But it's really understand because everyone's working together as a team. We've only just unveiled the seven clubs, and yet everyone is already asking, including some very interested investors, when is expansion and where will new clubs be and how many? 
In your mind, what's the key to sort of balancing that future growth, which we know will happen, without stressing the player pool and the overall people pool in the short term? Good question. I think that regionally, you want to have rivalries are always important to bring extra excitement to the games and for the players. So you have your regional matches. But I do think you need a representation of the whole province because there's great players who come from the interior, from the island, not just from the lower mainland. So seven clubs is a really great start. It's just a matter of what's the right fit for number of teams as the league grows to make sure you have the right number of matches. There is a happy medium to try to figure that out, but uh, we're just going to have to figure that out as we go a little bit. What about the player pool? A lot of people say, well, do we have enough players and coaches and administrators to even fulfill the demand with all the different levels that are starting to appear in Canadian soccer? I believe so, because there are some really great coaches who either haven't had the right opportunity or it's just not the right fit for their skill set just at the time. So I do feel like there's definitely enough great coaches and staff members to be able to fill these roles. And it also gives an opportunity for people to grow into these roles and mentorship opportunities, which are really important, which this is supposed to be a high-performance league, and you want people to have exposure in those high-performance environments. You have a lot of things on your plate in the next couple of months. What are the immediate priorities for you, Sean? First of all, getting to know my BC soccer colleagues who I will be working hand-in-hand with, and then developing just positive relationships with the clubs and my communications with the clubs to make sure that everybody's on the same page as we move forward and the league gets started and the teams get going. So those are two big priorities. And then marketing-wise, obviously, to grow the uh, communication about the league and for people to, one, know that it's happening and where and when, I think, are really important. With a name like Sean Bagshaw, I am getting some Irish vibes. What was Christmas growing up like as a youngster? Yeah, my name is Welsh, so you're ah. correct. It's, it's Gaelic, but uh, I was born in Zimbabwe, so Christmas wasn't super big there. But yeah, I moved to North Vancouver when I was three, so been pretty typical North American Christmas growing up. So this is my first Christmas back in Vancouver in a while. So couldn't do the Christmas train at Stanley Park. Yeah, just enjoy being home with family. And was your little guy pretty excited to see some snow in yeah, uh, well, December? <laughs> we lived in Chicago, so ah. we, we saw a lot, a lot of snow. But the wet snow is very different from the dry snow. He likes all weather. Pretty fortunate that way. Sean, what a delight. And I wish you nothing but the best in your new role. And we're very lucky to have you. Season's greetings to you and yours. Yes, for you as well, Peter. Happy New Year and look forward to working with you and the team. Now, a training tip from BC Soccer's Manager of Coaching Development, Rob Shabai. As the Christmas season is at our doorstep, we literally are wrapping up, not just gifts, but as we enter into the winter break. You are likely giving your young players a break from soccer and encouraging them to spend time with their family and friends over the holidays. You might have even thought about providing some fun skills challenges they can try to stay sharp, and that's all good. So what can coaches do over the winter break? You may be spending some time tweaking your plans for the new year as you reflect on how the season has gone so far, and I'm sure you're checking it twice. But have you considered how or if you are creating safe sport environments? As leaders in soccer, we have a big role to play in this aspect as we contribute to building a legacy for the next generation through our current involvement in the game. Here are three principles you can reflect on over the winter break in addition to fine-tuning your technical and tactical aspects of your program. One, take an inventory of your leadership practices and behaviors. Does your professionalism align with the inherent power and authority that you hold? Two, what does health and safety mean to you? How have you considered the social, emotional, psychological, physical health and safety of all participants under your leadership? Three, respect and integrity are rights of all participants. 
So what strategies do you have in place to ensure that these safe sport environments are evident in your DTE, or daily training environment? Perhaps commit to spending some time on self-directed learning this break. Consider the NCCP online modules like Safe Sport Training, Emergency Action Planning, or Making Headway Concussion Management. These are all free of charge and don't take too long to complete. We owe it to our players, the parents, the club, and to ourselves to create a more positive and safe soccer experience for all. Have a look on our website at bcsoccer.net under the Coach tab. You'll find more information in the Added Education and Safety Resources section. On behalf of BC Soccer, we wish you a Merry Christmas and, of course, very good coaching in the new year. That was today's training tip with Rob Shabai. To find a coaching course near you, visit bcsoccer.net and choose Register for a Course under the Coach tab. Two Sundays back, Pacific FC became the first team not named Forge to win the North Star Shield awarded to the Canadian Premier League champions. The island-based club had to navigate a bubble phase in Winnipeg, followed by a more regular-looking campaign, a memorable Voyager's Cup journey that included an upset in the first All-BC derby, and then the well-deserved title in Hamilton. The man who backstopped it all came through the BC system from tree-lined Oak Park with Marpole Soccer Club, through the Whitecaps Residency Program, our provincial program, with stops in Ottawa and Texas on the way. I'm so thrilled to welcome to the Cones and Pennies podcast a Winston Churchill Bulldog and Kentucky Wildcat goalkeeper, Callum Irving. Peter, thanks for having me. That was quite the introduction. Do you remember the team name back then? My team name was the Marpole Blues. Ah, right. I was coaching the Marpole Wolves around the same time. And if not for your dad, Rob, we would have never had a lined pitch to play on. Your dad could line a field blindfolded. Honestly. (laughs) (laughs) How fondly do you look back on those days? Those are probably the best memories I have. That is my childhood defined as Oak Park, my dad lining fields and training there during the week and playing there on the weekend. You know, whether it was the grass pitch, the gravel pitch or in the hockey court, one way or another, we were getting a training session in. And I mean, it was right in my neighborhood. I could walk there. Those are the best, most formative memories I have in in terms of football. Were you a goalkeeper all along? I think I pretty much started out as a goalkeeper. And then, you know, when you're young like that, sometimes you get a chance to showcase your abilities on the field of play. I spent a few years where I would kind of venture outside, play a little bit of center midfield, try some long shots. But for the most part, I've kind of always been a keeper. Yeah. When did it start getting serious for you, Callum? I'd say probably around 10 years old is when I started doing extra training on the side with TSS out in Richmond at the old Sports Town facility. And that's probably when I started to do that extra work, playing with a lot of really good players from different parts of the Lower Mainland. And then when I was 12 years old, went to Holland and Belgium with a team from there. And when I went to Europe, it was like, okay, this is everything I've ever dreamt of. I need to be playing. So pretty young age, I'd say. Wow. So the professional game was something that you dreamed about pretty early. And and at that stage, were, were you just trying to keep progressing and taking those next steps? Or how did you approach that? Yeah, I mean, I think... Every kid, you know, you have a dream career probably that that you have some sort of interest in. And so naturally, I was just enjoying myself first and foremost. I don't think I've ever been the one that's been pulling teeth over how exactly I'm going to make it happen. I just enjoyed the game. But luckily, I had a dad amongst my other family members as well, but especially my dad who pretty much did anything he possibly could to help me, whether that's go after school straight to a field and work on my kicking and 
that was at, you know, 11 years old doing that. And it's something that I had fun doing, but he knew would be beneficial for me. So I think he really fanned the flame and pushed me to actually work at becoming better. So I have uh, him to thank for a lot of that. What was the process like getting to a big university in the States? It was something that I really had talked about in the middle of high school, but didn't really have any idea how to get there and also thought I'll be playing in Europe at age 17, 18. So I'm just doing this because my high school teacher told me I have to look up universities. But as high school went along and I was moving on in the Whitecaps program, it became something where the Whitecaps were aiding me in that. And so they had connections through some of their assistant coaches at the time and basically just putting my name out there. And then luckily, Kentucky was looking for a keeper. I got on the phone, I got on a plane and there I was. So not a whole lot of time passed between the introductions and the actual uh, wheels touching down. But looking back at something that I wouldn't trade for anything, I think it was probably one of the best things for my development. And playing in the U.S. college system is a big step. How big a culture shock was the move to Kentucky? (laughs) It was definitely a culture shock. I remember showing up there as a freshman and realizing I don't know anybody and being kind of completely out of my comfort zone. But luckily, with all the culture shock that comes with moving to the South, being part of a school like that with an athletics program like that, they help you feel at home to the nth degree. I mean, it's the amount of support that you get when you attend that university is unbelievable. And I was lucky to make some very, very close friends out of my teammates from my freshman year onwards. So I say that eased the culture shock for me, but there's still some interesting things that I could only experience there. (laughs) I'm trying to get my timelines correct, but I I recall you were on trial with Chicago Fire when Frank Yallop was coaching there and we were in Portland for a preseason tournament around the same time. What did you learn from that MLS experience? Looking back, I think at the time it was a bit of a whirlwind for me. So, you know, during it, I was just kind of trying not to drown a little bit coming out of college and a national team camp and being without a club and trying to make it work. But I think looking back, I realized what it really means to compete on a professional level. Because when I arrived, there was Sean Johnson, who's obviously leading NYCFC. There was Matt Lampson, and he was coming off of playing with Columbus a guy, Patrick McLean, who had been at Chivas USA. And then they brought in another guy from college, Matt Bersano. So there was about five keepers there, three spots, and all of them were older than me. And I kind of came in thinking, you know, I'm highly rated from college. They were very, very interested in me. This is a bit of a formality to realizing nothing is guaranteed. And you have to put it in every single day to a level that maybe you didn't know you had to. So for me, it was realizing like, okay, you you have to compete. And if you don't, somebody out there will take your job. And that's kind of what happened. You know, I ended up uh, back home uh, at the beginning of March with no club and Chicago Fire with the three keepers that they wanted for the season. Did it feel like a setback at the time? Or do you now look back and actually maybe feel a bit relieved because it wasn't the greatest team, you know? I take everything as a positive learning outcome. There's no point for me to look back and wonder what if. I'm very grateful for the memories I made after that and for the resilience that it gave me because it was definitely at the time very difficult going back home to Vancouver after that preseason and kind of looking at myself in the mirror and going, what's gone wrong here? You know, I thought I had it all figured out and here I am back home at my parents' place without a club. So at the time it was difficult, but looking back, I'm very grateful for what I've learned. But then Rio Grande Toros came calling not long after very memorable years in Ottawa playing under Mark Dos Santos. How much did your time in the capital prepare you for what happened even this year, for example? 
that first year in RGV was huge for me, kind of realizing not everything is going to be as sweet as it is in college when you're getting taken care of by such a massive athletics program. Made a lot of great friends there and then had the opportunity, like you said, to go to Ottawa and play in Ottawa. And yeah, spent three years there and it was just, I mean, again, a crash course on the professional game, right? The travel in the USL championship is extreme to say the least. And so uh, you really see what it's like to be playing week in, week out, traveling, responsibilities of trying to make playoffs and great fans in Ottawa and um, you want to give them a good quality on the pitch and and you want them to be able to cheer and support a winning team so I definitely learned a lot from that and, and what it means to play in my home country and I think that that only benefited me when I signed for Pacific in 2020 and eventually got to play a full season this year. It did cross my mind that it must have been an odd circumstance to play a big role in winning the Canadian Championship game that ultimately ended Mark Dos Santos's time in Vancouver. Did that cross your mind too? It was definitely a bit odd the next day to see that news. You know, I think he probably understands better than anybody that that's how the business goes. We had to win that game. They had to win that game. And so we set out over 90 minutes, both trying to do what we had to do. And no matter what, at the end of a game, whatever result occurs, there's outcomes, whether they're positive or negative. For us, they were quite positive. And unfortunately, uh, some of the outcomes for the Whitecaps that day were quite negative. That game was quite a spectacle. Where does it rank on your list of career match milestones? Before, a couple Sundays ago, I would have said number one, but I think it has to be number two after winning my first professional championship. Maybe number three after the national team debut for me, but... I don't know. That was honestly, I've, I don't think I've ever played in front of a crowd like that. It was about 5,000 people, I think, which isn't the biggest crowd I've ever played in front of. But as far as passion, intensity, and just overall feeling like a proper cup match, I don't think I've ever experienced anything like that. How did the Pacific opportunity come about originally? Well, the Ottawa Fury suspended operations at the end of 2019, which left all of its players without a club. And at that point, my agent and myself set about trying to figure out what the next step would be. And there had been interest from Pacific FC before their inaugural season. But naturally, we both decided to go in different directions at that time. And so basically, after 2019, we revisited our relationship and for speaking with Pa a number of times. I just felt like it was something I wanted to be a part of. And Ultimately, being that close to home, being a Vancouver kid was just something that was an opportunity I I really felt like I couldn't pass up. So it's something I grabbed with both hands. What a season, Callum. And it wasn't just that you won, but it was how your team played. It was a fun team to watch. And it seemed like you had incredible depth given who didn't play in those critical final games. What was the secret sauce, do you think, to the 2021 Pacific FC story? I mean, it's a bit cliche, but it's the culture of, of our club from kind of top to bottom that we've built over these last two years. Obviously, I wasn't there that first year. I know there was a lot of struggles, but I really think that it's a really good group of guys in that locker room and in the office and with our coaching staff. Guys who maybe haven't gotten the opportunities that they've wanted, but hasn't let them lose their hunger. And so I think, you know, over this season, like you said, the depth that was on show in regards to the fact that we had some very, very, very important key players go down at very, very crucial moments, a la the Vancouver Whitecaps game losing Bustos, right? And guys just stepped up and it was that kind of mentality throughout the season. 
And I think you get that as well when players feel valued, when players are spoken to honestly by staff and by their teammates. It's easy to feel valued within a team environment and so that you know whenever your name is called, you feel ready and you know you can do your part. That was super important for us. Judging by the location of the final and the media coverage, you would have thought Forge had already won it going in. So how sweet was it to dethrone the two-time champs in their own backyard? Yeah, I mean, the politically correct answer is we don't care who we play or where we win as long as we win. But naturally, there is a bit of extra oomph. If you can't win it at home in front of your own fans, you do it at the home of the two-time defending champs, right? So we definitely did not take the easy route when it came to the end of the season and the path that we had to take in the playoffs, playing away at Cavalry and playing away at Forge. But I think that definitely makes it all the more sweeter when you finally get to lift that trophy. It's easy to say it afterwards. I knew we were going to win it, but how confident (laughs) was your group going in? I think there was definitely a quiet confidence because we had been putting in the work for a long time. You know, we stayed after last year's Island Games in PEI. We stayed in Victoria and we trained maybe not every day, but we trained regularly and we came in this year and we pushed through all the different COVID requirements we had to, to to get our work in. And throughout the season, we pushed ourselves in training. We kind of battled through everything. And when you have all that in your back pocket and it comes down to the 90 minutes ahead of you, I think we all knew over 90 minutes, no matter who was put in front of us, we had a chance to win. So we definitely had that confidence. It was a horrible game for a goalkeeper. I was anxious (laughs) watching driving rain, typical Hamilton wind tunnel, your team facing a fair bit of pressure while clinging on to a lead. How do you cope with those stressful situations? You try and live in the moment as much as possible. Like you said, the weather conditions were not ideal. One thing you have to remind yourself before the game is everybody's playing in the same weather conditions. So you kind of got to toss that out the window, especially like you said, knowing what Hamilton is like. If you weren't expecting wind at the very least, then you were very naive. But for me personally, it's just living in the moment, right? If you start to kind of step back a little bit and think about what's going on, that's when nerves start to kick in and everything. But if you really just live in the moment, play in the moment, continue your communication with your teammates, you kind of just play off of instinct and your and your training, which, like I said before, we had done a lot of. <laughs> but then the sweetest sound in the world, the final whistle. What went through your mind at that point, Callum? Pure jubilation. Honestly, I kind of... I'm not much of a winner. I've worked really hard in my life and, and try to, but whether it's with Marpole, whether it's with the Whitecaps, you know, many a times I've come up short. And so I'm not an experienced winner. So I kind of didn't know what to do. I just knew I wanted to be around my teammates in that moment. And so pretty much find where the biggest group was uh, headed and dogpile at that point. I really hope this victory helps drive some new fans to Starlight Stadium because it's a special place. I think your group deserves a full house every game, given how you play the game. Do you feel that way too? And is this hopefully a, a moment that will put Pacific FC more on the island map? To be fair, maybe we don't pack it every time, but the fans that do come out are are fantastic. And we always feel their support. They're very vocal. They're very educated on, on soccer. And we appreciate it every time. But like you said, I think winning a championship and doing it in such a public way can only help to boost the support that we have on the island. And again, soccer is something that's very important to the culture out here. And so hopefully over these uh, last two years, people have gone through a lot of difficulties and have seen the positives that we can bring. And 2022, I just hope we can take that next step as a club and as a fan base. How are you spending the off season? And when do you start even thinking about 2022 again? Uh, well, 
off season will be spent probably mostly in Vancouver, seeing friends, family, loved ones, trying to unplug a little bit from the craziness that was this year. But I think I'll probably be back in town in Victoria around the end of January, beginning of February. And I'd say that month of January is where I start getting kind of focused back in on the task at hand. But I think for most of December, I'll probably enjoy it. You can't drink out of a plate, Callum. So how have you and your teammates (laughs) celebrated? Well, the night of, uh, I think there was a lot of drinking off a plate, using it as a uh, (laughs) funnel of sorts or just a pathway from bottle to mouth. But beyond that, just being around each other, right? Unfortunately, the downside is the fact that the final got pushed back so late that pretty much some guys were just heading home straight from the final, whether they lived in Toronto and kind of just stayed there or, you know, we're doing other things. It's the unfortunate side to a season having to be pushed like this due to COVID and different things, but the energy and the positivity within our group chats has not dissipated. So there's still a a lot of fun in the air. You sound like somebody, as you mentioned earlier, who really enjoyed his childhood. So I'm guessing around Christmas time, it was really special when you got some kind of Christmas gear or jerseys or, or what was Christmas like for you as a young man? Christmas was usually the time I'd get FIFA for my (laughs) PC. So I'd always have to wait. It released in September, but I'd have to wait until Christmas. And I'd pretty much get FIFA every year for Christmas so that I could start playing a career mode with Manchester United and lead them to all kinds of glory and sign all my favorite players. And then beyond that, I would be hoping for a Manchester United jersey and uh, maybe any kind of new uh, gloves or boots. So pretty much anything soccer related I was desperate for. Callum, I'm so happy for you as someone who has worked his hiney off through the pathway. It was just so great to see you rewarded, and I hope that's the first of many. Thank you so much for joining us on the Cones and Pennies podcast. Thank you for everything, Peter. I really appreciate it. Hi, it's Jason Elagod here, Executive Director of BC Soccer, and I want to thank you for listening to the podcast, and also thank you for all the work that you're doing to support soccer in your local community. Soccer wouldn't be what it is without people like yourself. All the best over the holidays from BC Soccer, its board, and staff. When we look back on 2021 and we reflect on Canadian soccer's most iconic moments, there will be Sam Atakubi launching himself into a pile of snow in Edmonton, But the one etched in so many long-suffering Canadian soccer fans' memories will be from August, when Julia Grosso's penalty rippled the netting, preceding wild celebrations for Canada's Olympic gold medal women's team in Japan. And at the helm of that project was their effervescent head coach, who demanded of her group that we change the color of the medal. It was a bold proclamation that was not only taken on board, but became manifest destiny from one of the most mentally resilient performances that I've ever seen. I'm thrilled to welcome to the Cones and Pennies podcast, Canadian women's national team head coach, Bev Priestman. Ah, oh, Bev, thank you so much for doing this. No worries, Peter. Thank you. First of all, is Consit England close enough to Newcastle for you to be considered a Geordie? Yes. Just. (laughs) What was it like growing up in in the mid-80s in the northeast of England? Probably everything you can imagine. I think, like, obviously soccer, football, it's in your blood. Working class, small town, everyone knows everyone. And so, for me as a young, what would have been a soccer player playing in the streets, putting jumpers down for goals and just, you know, hanging out with a group of lads and, and playing soccer, really. So, it was in my blood from a very early age, I would say. And were you a Magpies fan? No, I was a massive Man United fan. I had the the bedspread, the lampshade, the curtains, everything. So yeah, massive Man United fan, which I'm not sure many Geordies would appreciate. (laughs) 
on, <laughs> on New Year's Eve, Bev, are you going to be sad to see 2021 slip away, given how monumental a year it was for both you and your program? Do you know what it is? I think that'll be the only day where I actually, you know what it's like, you reflect on the year. It might actually hit me what 2021 was, because I think... I haven't really stopped. It's been busier than ever since we came back. You know, I think I'll take that day, that night, the fireworks, everything that goes with New Year to probably appreciate what the year it was and get ready to face a a year that might actually be more challenging than the year before. Because I think when you've had that high, how do you go push on and, and do more things? I think that, that'll be the true test for this team. Let's reflect even further because I mentioned earlier, the group wasn't shy about publicly proclaiming that the color of the medal had to change. Is part of the accountability process being bold and putting your goals out there? Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I first got the job, I had a couple of interviews and media and a couple of people said to me like, Ben, do you really think this team can change the color of the medal? And You know, I didn't do it from a media standpoint. I did it more internally for the players to be motivated more than ever because I knew, you know, they'd gone back-to-back bronze, but really the trajectory of the team, if you looked at the results, the last sort of eight games against top 10, we'd conceded like 17 goals, hadn't won. It actually wasn't leading that way, but I knew the group needed like snapped into, right, okay, let's go and let's challenge the group. Let's be hungrier than ever. And, And it was purposely done that way. And I think to say it, have that in the front of our mind, even when, you know, in the morning it's raining like it does every day here in BC. I think when you've got that big hairy goal, it gets you out of bed and you you go and push to achieve it. And it's not like you inherited a terrible group either. But what did you identify as the missing ingredients between the levels of that podium? I think number one would be hunger. I actually felt the group were too comfortable. And to be honest with you, I'd gone away, done my own thing, went to work with England. And I came back and it amazed me how everything was still the same as 2016, 2014, even, you know, the staff processes, the players. And so it got me reflecting that if everything's just the same, it is really easy to be comfortable. And so what you would have seen over that nine months, I brought in new faces. You know, no shirt was given. I made some huge calls, even down to like a Steph Labby, who ends up being a critical component to that gold medal. I remember she believes Cup. I, I chose to start Caelan Sheridan. So I just, I made some really big, bold decisions to, I guess, try and see if those players who were going to step up and be hungry and and, and for me, that was one of the biggest ingredients. And then the second thing was the mindset of the group, the belief. And that when I first sort of had my first culture meeting with the group, we spoke about bravery and we rated it on a scale of one to 10. And you would have read that a lot. And the group said to me, I said, what's the bravest this team's ever been? And for those in BC, you might remember 2017 US at BC Place. They said, Bev, that's the bravest we've ever been. And so we unpicked why and, and really for me it was a mindset shift for this group to say actually like we are going to be bold, we are going to be brave and we're going to die trying and I think that was also a key factor really in this group changing the colour. Well and that leads to the two really obvious things at least through my lens about your group. One of them was mental strength and resilience. And I don't know how many times during that tournament or in penalty shootouts even where it seemed like circumstances were conspiring against your group and yet your players seemed completely unfazed. You mentioned Steph Labe, the penalty whisperer. How much of that 
is preparation versus their character. Yeah, I think it's a blend of both. Like you speak there to the penalties. We took more penalties than any other team. I've got no doubt about it. Right down to little things that no one on the TV would see. But let's say a Desiree Scott, right? You put her name down to take a penalty, she will run off the pitch. So she had a role in every time someone took a penalty kick, whether they scored or missed it, her job in that team was to go and collect them, bring them back so that you know what it's like when you miss a penalty, it's a long walk back. So we just put in like all of these processes. We worked harder than any other team, I believe, at that whole process. And so I think that fills a group with mental strength, right? I I knew when I was in extra time that we had a fit team, but I also knew that when it came to penalties, we'd done the work. And I think if I felt like that, the players felt like that. But then the second thing with this group, and I learned this my very first game, USA, number one in the world. And we had, obviously, COVID was around and we were missing eight starters. And I remember sort of rolling into that game thinking, I've got no idea what I'm going to get here. And I was on the phone to Christine Sinclair and she said to me, Bev, believe me, this team, they stand up when it matters. And the minute the whistle went after that US game, what I learned about this team was actually when we do face adversity, And you look at that group stage of the Olympics, we weren't unbelievable. It wasn't great. But as soon as we beat Brazil, I knew. I knew we were going to win it because, like I say, this group, they're actually at their best when their back's against the wall. The other thing that was really obvious about your group, and I think it's been this way for a while, is how together they were. And that's despite being from every corner of the country, different ages, cultural backgrounds. What do you think that unity comes down to? I think like the pride of putting on the jersey, I think that's number one. Definitely, I think that's what motivates the group. And then you hear about every every coach, every leader would say, oh, you need a vision, you need a purpose, what binds a group together. But I genuinely believe that to be the case. Every player for however many, I think my first camp was February and the Olympics was July. I know from February onwards, every player woke up every morning clear about what we were there to do and we actually spoke a lot about how the world stopped right in COVID and we were going to be the team that brought hope to this country and when the world stopped we were still working harder than any other team and so I think they had a shared purpose a shared vision but also I look and I know this even just the BC girls you know Jordan or Julia they've been through amazing memories highs lows they were in the group that didn't qualify for the under 20s All of these moments and memories, the highs and the lows are what bind you together as a group. And I think this group have gone through World Cup disappointment to getting on a podium to not qualifying youth. Like they've had all of these experiences that just, you know, a little bit like make them sisters. Like you genuinely felt, and I did say it, we were in Japan and we were locked in a hotel, right? Other than being able to go to a pitch. And I knew that our X factor was actually how much this group genuinely, like you hear your team say it, and I was with England, and I knew that this team had actually meant it, that they love spending time together. So they'd be on Mario Kart, they'd be staying for an hour after dinner to just chat. A lot of countries probably were at dinner, back to their room, you know, and they have little clicks and coffee clubs and all the rest of it. This team genuinely are very together and very connected, and you've seen that translate on the pitch. It's funny, Bev, we've talked almost 10 minutes now and we haven't once talked about tactics or formations. You're you're a young, modern manager. In your role, what's the balance now between creating the very environment you talked about versus the actual technical nitty-gritty of competition? 
Yeah, I think the Bev five years ago, it would have been all about the X's and O's, the tactics. I would have been locked in my room and, yeah, been the, you know, Pep Guardiola of an under-20 or an under-17 team. I think through my experiences and especially working with different cultures, you know, England, Canada, essentially our job as coaches is to help players perform on demand. And basically to do that, you've got to get the best out of people. You've got to set an environment that's safe, that's challenging, where people can be themselves and bring their personality. They've got to love doing what they do. And then you just go and pick the right players. And, and you know, my job in that Olympics, a mentor said it to me, Bev, your number one thing is to pick the, the right starting 11 and to make the right subs. And, and outside of that, my job really is to set a culture, to connect with them, to untap their potential, to make them believe that they can do anything. I think the balance is definitely more towards the culture, the environment, the mindset. And then, you know, pick the right players, make the right subs and, and put a system in place that, let's be honest, at international level, you come together for 10 days generally in a window. I can't operate with five, six formations and, you know, have all of that complexity because they're all going back to an environment that play a totally different way. And I think what I did really well in this last nine months is I kept it simple, recognising that, you know, the amount of time I had with the group to, to help them be successful. Well, it's great that you brought that up because I've been wondering about the rapid progression of the women's game overall, particularly at the European club level, given that you only do have the limited time with your players, as you alluded to. How much have you benefited from the improving standard in some of those big leagues and clubs? I see it straight away. You know, even in this last window, we were missing some some big names and you feel it. The minute that them Europeans particularly, and that's not taking anything away from the unbelievable players we have as well in NWSL and all the other countries. But I would say, if I put my attention on in England, I, I feel it when they come in, the, the ball speed, the tempo, like they're around some of the best players day in, day out with the best facilities, the best sports science, like you feel that. And I think that's definitely helped our programme. The bit that's the challenge that the programme's never had is you look at what this group had going into the 2016 Olympics, I think it was like 59% more contacts. We were more like a club model. And I think what I had to do coming in is shift the mindset of the staff to say, actually, our job isn't to develop them every day. Our job is to get the best out of them and make an environment that helps get the best out of them when they're with us and then remotely work with their clubs to get the best out. And I think our mindset had to shift to what it's previously been. I want to focus on a BC gal and Jordan Haitema because uh, she does represent one of those uh, at the big European club level, still so young, and yet she played such a crucial role at the Olympics that was so important and yet probably unnoticed. Is that a fair assessment of her role as she came on to lock games down at times? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, Jordan was one of the toughest calls I had to make in that selection, right? I've had Jordan since 12, 13 at under 15s, obviously, I'm in Vancouver. I've watched her grow and develop. And I think, you know, I, originally I left Jordan out of the 18-player roster. And people would say, why? Like, you know, she's, she's touted to be the next Christine Sinclair. And ultimately, what got her back in in them group stages was her versatility. You got to say she could play in the number nine role. She could play out wide. She's got athleticism that, you know, when a team's tired in extra time, you put Jordan on and all of a sudden that back line starts wondering how they're going to get through the next however many minutes. And so I think for Jordan, you're right. I think she, unfortunately, unfortunately, at a young age has been in the spotlight. And I think 
there's some great learnings for us as a programme around how you help set someone up for success. And I've had some great chats with Jordan post-Olympics. She's more motivated than ever to make sure she not only plays the role that you talk about where it's not necessarily the limelight, she actually, you know, is what she can be, which is a starting eleven player for Canada moving forward. So I think she's she's done a tremendous job. She's at a big club and she did have a pivotal role in us getting that gold medal. One of the things BC Soccer is super proud of is just the size of the British Columbia contingent in Japan, which includes you. We've adopted you, Bev. Uh, but everyone from Maeve to Jasmine to Adam, the list goes on and on. Does regional representation matter in a country the size of Canada, or is it just about having the best people you can? Well, if you ask my performance hat, it would be very much just getting the best people that you can. But I do think, and this is where, you know, all of the talk around pro leagues and NWSL and Candlelight, all of these things add to the bigger jigsaw piece. It would be short-sighted for me to just say, you know, get the best people. We have to have a forum to develop the best people. And I must say, like, BC Soccer's done an unbelievable job with the Whitecaps investing in recs. Like, you look at all the staff that, that were new under my regime that sort of come from the investment in developing some of the best players, best coaches, best staff here in Vancouver. But I think long term, we, we should represent the whole of Canada. We just need a platform to do that. While we're on the subject of the BC contingent, to see Christine Sinclair get a gold medal placed around her neck and to see her celebrate with another Burnaby girl in Julia was so symbolic in a way. Uh, in processing everything that happened on that day, how quickly did you feel that same sense of fulfillment for Christine? Well, I'll share a story. So the Brazil game, when we're in penalty kicks and we're lined up and you, you remember Christine missed and, you know, unlike Christine to miss. And that whole rest of the penalty shootout, I wasn't thinking about anything other than two things. Maeve Glass on my right, thinking she's retiring. And secondly, Christine Sinclair cannot go out, one, missing the penalty kick, and two, in the, in this manner. Because I think, you know, you, you wear that. They've given so much, you know, look at Christine, she's given so, so much to this country. And, you know, I didn't know whether Christine was going to continue or not. We've just focused on the, you know, the Olympics, the now, the present. But in my mind, I was thinking, there's no way she can go out like this. And so when I got to see and feel that moment where Christine gets the accolade she deserves. You look now, she's up for many, many Ballon d'Or, like all of those different accolades. It's about time. And I think, you know, I just felt so fulfilled. I got to see the look on her face um, and how much it actually meant to her to get that gold medal around her neck. So I felt really proud and privileged to be the coach that, that helped do that. We don't get to see the behind-the-scenes Christine Sinclair, and she's a private person to begin with. What aren't we seeing that you get to see of Christine in sort of a broader context? Like very, very down-to-earth and humble. I mean, I'm not saying anything you probably haven't already read, but does not want any special treatment, doesn't want to miss a session, doesn't want to come in late, even though our team is staying on an extra week and so she gets less days to recover. I would just say like the ultimate professional, but a massive winner. You know, when you talk about big goals, changing the colour of the medal, you see Christine's eyes get wider and wider. And I think that winner, that her accomplishments are there because of the type of person she is. She's never got ahead of herself. She's always stayed humble, leads by example. And, you know, it's a good reminder for me. Like, I'm a young-ish coach, and I think even dealing with someone like Christine, you know, she wasn't in very much before the Olympics with me. And, 
you know, you learn, doesn't want any special treatment, wants to be challenged, winners want to be challenged. And I think she's ready to go again, ready for this World Cup. And I'm just so happy that right now she hasn't decided to hang up her boots. <laughs> well, that's a perfect place to end the reflection and look forward. What do the next couple of months look like, Bev, with the World Cup looming in 18 months? Yeah, so I think, first of all, it's it's how we shift the goal now to a big, hairy goal again, because I think you've heard that old saying, there's no hunger in paradise. That's my biggest fear, that this team were a flash in the pan and we go and get a gold and then, you know, that that be it. So our next focus is World Cup and we've been a team that bounces back and underperforms at World Cups and then, then goes and nails it on the podium. So we've really done a lot of work around what is it that we've done in the past? What do we need to do to be successful at a World Cup? And that's really our focus now and all of our planning and who we play and when we play and why we play a certain way is all tailored around being successful at a World Cup. And then um, come February, we're in a big tournament in England. We've got England, Spain and Germany at the Euro venue. So that'll be an unbelievable tournament part of. And then come June, we're in our World Cup and Olympic qualifiers. So it's it's a big year. We don't get a down year like our usual sort of four-year cycle. We're in a three-year cycle and we, we have to be ready to perform and get some new faces ready to compete. Now, if my horrible math is correct, your son Jack would be three. So I'm guessing the holidays will be full of wonder and excitement. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yes, that is correct. I think this is the first year where he actually, you know, gets it. And we're, we're off to Mexico, actually, for Christmas. So I'm not sure he's going to get all of the hype of the snow, but he was very happy to see some Vancouver snow yesterday. Listen, I feel very fortunate that I'm in a position to even say thank you directly for your major part in leading something that I will never forget in my lifetime. But I, I do so on behalf of all British Columbians and Canadians from coast to coast. Thank you, Bev Priestman, and season's greetings to you and yours. Thanks, Peter. My sincere thanks to our guests today, Sean Bagshaw, Callum Irving, and Bev Priestman. What a fantastic trio of human beings. And there are so many more who are either from BC or like Bev have been adopted by BC. And my goal for 2022 is to find more British Columbians, whether they're at the elite level or within the grassroots of the game, and share their stories, their journeys, and hopefully inspire you to remain in the game and aim for the stars. Until our next show, which should have some more exciting updates, I wish you a very festive, happy holiday season and a healthy and prosperous new year. You've been listening to the Cones and Pennies podcast. If you have feedback or a topic suggestion, email Cones and Pennies podcast at bcsoccer.net.